We're back for part two. We didn't leave y'all hanging. <laughs> Just for a week. That's fine. Yeah, yeah. I hope you weren't like on the edge of your seat the whole time. Like, I gotta find out what do the angles think about all these people. Yeah. <laughs> if so, you should have found something more interesting to do <laughs> with your week. Uh, we did get a little piece of listener mail about part one. Ah, it's a correction. We love okay. corrections around here. I was gonna say, what did we mess up? <laughs> yeah, no, we did. <laughs> uh, so big shout out to Derek. Thank you for this. Uh, uh, this person reached out and let us know that uh, the Iroquois term we've been using is kind of incorrect. That is like a colonial name from the French. Turns out it means snake. Pretty rude. Iroquois, the word? The, the word, it is like a reference to snake. What do Iroquois What do the people formerly known as Iroquois use? So they now use the term uh, Haudenosaunee. Man, we should have done Iroquois join gents last time. <laughs> Yeah, now we gotta we gotta work on on switching out the word. So we are going to do our best to incorporate this term instead of the previous one for this indigenous group of people. Uh, this new word Haudenosaunee translates to people of the Longhouse, which is pretty accurate, I would say. So listeners, I don't know. This happens a lot with different uh, we call exonyms things that are named after other people outside of that group. You know, so like a, a neutral example is just language barrier. So like uh, Germans, uh, you know, they don't call themselves that because they, they're Deutschland, so they're a different thing in, in their language. So, you know, this this happens in history. We have a typical word, and then later we're like, oh, that's not a good idea or whatever. You know, uh, <laughs> Indians, you know, you still see mm, in history yeah, books, yeah. American Indians referred to, and that's basically accepted as historians go, but then you have other groupings within that of Native Americans, First Nation peoples, you know, different, and then obviously different particular groups and stuff. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you see the term Indian in this reading even, so, yeah. Well, you see worse terms than that, but. <laughs> oh, you see way worse terms than that, which we talked about last week. Yeah, thank you so much, Derek, for that. We really appreciate corrections. Yeah, that it's less work for us. So <laughs> thanks thanks for doing the work and sending the link and all that good stuff. We don't need a recap last time, do we? Nah. Go, go, go listen. listen to it. Yeah. <laughs> That's what it's there for. This, this is, is a part two. two. It's don't labeled as part such. two before part one. Come on. If you missed it, go back and get the notes. The, re- the lecture is recorded and online. <laughs> go watch the Zoom meeting. Ugh. Every time someone says, I'm going to record this in case someone wants to watch it, I'm just like, what is the scenario? What is the scenario? Yeah. I mean, that's true. I mean, there are pretty studious college students out there, though, maybe. I mean, in college, I kind of get it. Maybe you can put that on the background while you're doing stuff. In work, you can just fucking text somebody and be like, hey, was that important? Do I need to pay attention to it? Yeah, there's 0% <laughs> chance of that. Yeah. Someone tunes in the whole damn meeting that already happened. Yeah, no, I'm good. Just I need the five minutes that were relevant to me, and that's it. Well, like in college, at least you do have the notion of you did, you know, you are in some someone's paying, paying for, for it. it. So in, in the American <laughs> context, anyway. Ugh, yeah. Yeah, let's get into it then. We're gonna be jumping in right where we left off last time, section three, the Haudenosaunee gens. Now that we have the correct term, and we'll be going through the rest of the readings if we can make it. I think we can. Uh, yeah, we'll totally, because it's like parts of these, we end up, uh, I ended up, so I know you ended up glossing over it, so. 
You're like, man, if I skipped this, they definitely did. <laughs> yeah, you did. Uh, yeah. I, you'll see in my notes where I just go, LOL, not reading this. <laughs> That's okay. A well, there's some of that in, uh, in this one. So, all right. Haudenosaunee talking about it's, this is like a, a big time breakdown of their society. Like, what are they like? Yes. Yeah. Uh, which is really interesting, uh, coming from someone who like clearly didn't even have the name right, did not know a lot about these folks. <laughs> yeah. So his thesis lays it out on top there says, okay, we think the Haudenosaunee, they have a same family structure and that like kinship group thing, the, mm-hmm. uh, the Genia or the Gentes or the Gens, oh, this whole that's the same. The family group. Yeah, with them and the Romans and the Greeks. Those equal each other. Uh, and he says basically the American form, meaning you know the Native American or the Haudenosaunee form, is the same as is the original. And then the Greeks and the Romans kind of like not borrow from it because no direct. They didn't know. But, <laughs> yeah, um, they didn't know about it. Probably they are like because of the different material conditions there. Uh, they're not evolved, but maybe derivative forms of it. They that. changed it over time. Once again, we're looking at a matrilineal society. Brothers can't marry sisters here. Cool. The children uh, belong to the father's gens. And the gens get cool names. Uh, they have eight gentes named after animals. Wolf, bear, turtle, beaver, deer, snipe, heron, and hawk. A snipe is a type of water bird. It's pretty cute. Looks kind of like that little sandpiper guy. Oh, yeah, a little long beak. It goes on to describe kind of how the gens operated, besides just being a kinship group and literally just a group of people, how they kind of operated as a... A society. Yeah, it's not like a government, but it is. it does have things that we associate with governments now. It's basically a way to self-govern or self-administrate I thought this was really interesting from an anarchist perspective of like, yeah, I mean, this seems pretty straightforward. Like it isn't, I mean, there's a little bit of hierarchy, but like it's seemed pretty fair and pretty democratic and pretty, pretty open, I would say. Yeah, I think you're right about the anarchy kind of angle is that it's very directly participatory. So it's like, you're never calling the cops on anybody you know you're never like (laughs) appealing to some other group to which is the hallmark of what it gets to later on with the state this is you like literally you and everybody else have to come together or you and the involved parties have to come together to figure out what you're going to do about problem x y or z yeah it's really interesting uh let's get into it so you've got the sachem which is the the head of the gens and peace and the chief who is the leader in war I think it's very interesting. I don't know if this is just a linguistic quirk that we decided Chief was the most important guy. <laughs> right. Well, that's probably the one that uh, white people came into contact with most well, probably, often. <laughs> that's probably Oh, shit. Right. The white people yeah. are showing up. We need to get the Chief up here. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. These fucking guys kill everyone they meet. <laughs> oh, my God. Uh, so the Sachem, the, the chill leader, <laughs> has to be chosen from among the members. Uh, his office is hereditary... So they have to fill it if something happens to him. But it wasn't like it would go to his son. Uh, it would go because they, they still like did things matrilineally. Uh, the office would probably go to like a brother or his sister's son or something. Military leader had to be chosen from outside the gens. And 
it was also like not as urgent of a role. Like you could leave that open if you wanted to. We're not fighting anybody today, so <laughs> it's fine. No need for a chief. <laughs> I wonder if there's just like a buff guy they know. Like we all know, like he's the backup, right? Like <laughs> shit breaks bad. Uh, everybody votes in elections, men and women. Uh, you still would require confirmation from the other seven gens. Like you know, Wolf couldn't go off the deep end here <laughs> and be like, "Fuck it, we're gonna do capitalism." Yeah, you can't elect, um, you know, serial killer Steve or something to be your <laughs> your, your, your peace guy. Because then be they're going to be like, no, I mean, no, we're not. We're not going to have the head. You know, the meeting of the Sachems is not going to. We're not going to meet with that. We're guy. not going to talk to that guy. <laughs> <laughs> Do you think they had voter turnout problems? Like everyone's supposed to vote in the election. It's like, sorry, I was like doing anything else. Like I was just like I was enjoying life. Some berries. <laughs> I mean, maybe, especially, like, if you think about, like, kind of a a society where food is more, like, take it where you can get it. I bet there was a situation where, like, dude, I, like, just was tracking this deer. Like, I couldn't leave it, you know? Yeah. I mean, they probably would have just not done the meeting at that time, I guess, but. I mean, I I could see someone being late for for hunting or gathering reasons. Yeah. (laughs) So, again, this wasn't a a coercive authority. It's not like they're going to, like throw you in jail if you don't listen to mm-hmm. the sachem but it it was more of a a moral leader i guess that sounds like bad because of the current connotation of that but <laughs> well no uh it, the leader was mainly based on power of persuasion of people liking them and trusting them so that when they said let's do this people were like okay yeah sounds great let's do that <laughs> talk a little bit about like the kind of federalization uh, do we want to get into that? I think it's a little in the weeds. Oh, the details that we get into? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I I uh, just said in general, they seem chill, egalitarian. Engels uh, goes on to say this is why all of the indigenous people that we talk to are cool. <laughs> Basically is what he's, he chalks it up to is they've got a cool system of government. Like they, they, have, a, they have a society that honors the individual spirit and centers it you know doesn't doesn't ask it to be crushed daily by a state so they come out you know people with dignity and they seem they seem cool yeah yeah i w- i liked how impressed he was by their practices a couple quick notes about the gens and and how that kind of affects their society we talked about this last time in general gens will dictate who you can marry. Mm-hmm. Uh, and in this case, you can't marry within the gens, which makes sense. You're trying to, you know, yeah. mix things up. <laughs> but you can marry within the tribe, right? And that's when he was yes. making more fun of poor McClellan. Oh, McClellan my God. Yeah, yeah. They're like, he calls it his hopeless confusion. <laughs> <laughs> Hurt poor himself guy. in his hopeless confusion. Oh, buddy. <laughs> Your property would be passed on to other members of the gens. It had to remain inside the gens. But that was fine. Because most of your property was like, you know, not hugely valuable. You know, you weren't leaving herds behind again. Like right. that was such a big wealth factor in other cultures. You don't have nearly as much transferable wealth, the opportunity to accumulate that because you're materially just not that advanced. I like this. The the members owing each other help, protection, uh, and also like avenging harm, which was interesting. 
I mean, I think this is what like real, not fake self-policing, but actual self-policing would look like of like, hey, like we look out for each other. Somebody fucks with someone like we will take care of it, I guess. Like hopefully that doesn't happen, but if that happens, you know, they kind of just got a posse together and would just take them out. Didn't they talk about how they would go, the gens would kind of talk about, talk it out first and be like, yo, this happened. What's the deal? Yeah, if it's a person outside the gens, like, attack somebody or whatever, you'd first have a meeting between the gen leaders of, like, hey, can we resolve this? Like, that's pretty fucked up. Um, you'd see if you could, like, come to a settlement, basically. If not, then you'd, like, get into a fighting situation. But it was very much like, it's not like we're going to war with your gens. It's like, okay, <laughs> we're going to go beat up this one guy. And it's then not we're like done. the Sopranos or something. <laughs> yeah, right? yeah. It just like spirals a into war. a bloodletting, but... It's very targeted of like, but this guy, like, seriously, we need to do something about him, you know? All right. Next, he gets into talking about the fray tree, uh, which is like the step up of like multiple gens combined uh, into and then multiple fray trees combines into the tribe, I think, is the next step. It's just kind of like levels, I should say. Uh, and they kind of mirror like he goes into just again uh, how they run that society within the fray tree. And it's the same. <laughs> it's it's kind of like, think of it like city, you know, county, state, whatever. Uh, you have like the entire nation, the Haudenosaunee, but then you have like the free trees and the gens. And then, yeah, you have like different groups within it. Yeah. yeah. And each one has its own way of dealing with things for its own local problems. And then you kind of work your way up from there. One thing I, I liked, the, the tribal council held within the uh, tribe, I guess, not so a level up from Fraser, you have the tribe <laughs> and their councils. Uh, I, I like this note that they were genuinely representative because these guys could be composed or these guys could be deposed at any time. If you didn't like your session or your war chief, you'd be like, this guy fucking sucks. He made a decision that we don't agree with. Get rid of him. So like, think about that. You actually have leverage here. You, it, this is not just like a fake Republic kind of situation. It's really like, no, 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 that sucks. Try again. <laughs> Yeah, a real small d democracy, you know, you can actually have an influence on what happens. Yeah, the, the discussions are in public, you are free to speak up, and the final decision had to be unanimous, which is like, I think, a big pillar of, of what I would consider anarchism as well, of like, no, 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 we're not, it's not just majority rule here, like, you gotta convince me. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think that's that's great, to the extent that it works. Yeah, I mean, you got to think this has got to be pretty small in terms of population. You can't do this for every decision at every level. That would be pretty crazy. Yeah. Because you're working with like a relatively small population on the tribal level, moving up from that, you have the, the federation of tribes. And he kind of talks about how the those tribes, the confederacy of them would have this federal council of 50 sachems, uh, all equal in rank and authority. And then they end up working through and making coming to decisions again unanimously and everything for this federation of tribes. And I think that is like a large part of why this system did pretty well for like a long time until, you know, until white people came around. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, because you have this whole community um, and in this case, they are like literally related to each other. They're taking care of each other. 
there's not any poor or needy. You have a community household. Uh, you all feel responsible for each other, including the old and the sick people and the disabled people. You know, there's, again, a large amount of equality for women. Uh, there's no slavery. Uh, like, there's just a lot of, of benefits to organizing society this way. Well, I mean, he openly kind of says it. You know, it's communistic. Very egalitarian, but he kind of also says that it's materially underdeveloped and that's kind of the reason why it kind of is automatically in this communistic sense of there's nothing there's no surplus to be dividing people into classes with like it's impossible yeah yeah like it's it's kind of communism by default of like well we're all equal because we don't have much right how would you be rich like rich with what (laughs) yeah so i think this is a good example in terms of like this I think answers a lot of the kind of common questions you get, like, how would you run things? You know, that kind of stuff. But with the huge caveat of hopefully our productive forces are doing well enough that this is not a so much a necessity as it is like a thing we all agree to do for each other. Yeah, we don't want to be in a like an impoverished sense of <laughs> a sense of communism of everyone having barely anything. But yeah, we'll have to. Yeah, I mean, I guess it's basically deciding. Yeah, I was like, it's not just convincing everyone to be nice but we have to win that i guess is what i mean (laughs) yeah we have to have the the productive means to take care of everything you know materially and more crucially we have to get rid of capitalism because yeah this this would not mesh with capitalism fundamentally cannot yeah moving on to the next section the greek gens i didn't have a lot on the greeks i wrote boring in the margins in fact (laughs) sorry greeks uh, I put it's a less cool version of the Haudenosaunee uh, because of the advancement of private property and patriarchy. That's kind of like the key difference. So it's this, he's basically saying that their societies developed in parallel ways in the early stages. And then when they get to this kind of uh, heroic age or whatever, that they, you know, quote unquote advance, but like, they, uh, it's it's the advancement of private property. It's the va- advancement of patriarchy. Definitely. So in this situation, you're moving away from mother right into father right. You've got more private wealth going on. Like, you know, you have more things, but fewer people have the things. <laughs> yeah. And so with that father right transition uh, came a weird transition uh, in terms of uh, marriage and the gens. So... Since everything was passing now patrilineally, the gens were still, however, kind of in control of everything, of society. So the gens really didn't want things to leave the property, to leave the gens. That's the whole idea. I mean, that was mother, right? was like, well, just just keep it in the gens. We'll just pass everything down that way. But if it's being passed down patrilineally, then what would happen is if you had a daughter, whatever her possessions would would not go to your gens anymore. It would go to the husband and his gens. Yeah. So basically if you had a rich enough lady that was getting married, you'd want her to marry within the gens, right? Yeah. Which is a a pretty big, yeah, a pretty big kind of perversion brought about by this need to pass on property correctly. I mean, in this case, it's like, Hey, go marry your uncle so we can keep all your shit. Yeah. Or your cousin or whatever, you know, (laughs) That's pretty fucked up, yeah. And, I mean, I think different parts of 
history had different concepts of what degree of cousins are bad mm-hmm. and stuff like that, but to us at least, it's very weird. It's like goes against the entire way that society had been set up yeah. for a very long time. So like it is a perversion in that sense. And I think even probably for some period of time they would have been like, Well, that's weird, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> this sucks that we have to do this, right? <laughs> Yeah, yeah. I, I also noted that, again, we get a little bit into the the running of gens and, and kind of like their electing of, of chieftains and things like that. But I, I think we're starting to see this transition into, whereas, you know, in the Haudenosaunee, there was some hereditary sense of the, some of the offices, like, yeah, it might pass to like the brother or, um, you know, the nephew if that person was like killed in office or something like that. I think here it it wasn't strictly hereditary. Um, And there's a note of you can't really do strict heredity in, in this stage because you still had a, like a pretty equal society for the most part. Like that's just incompatible with it. Uh, Like heredity, like, you know, basically what becomes monarchy later, the idea of I have inherited an office uh, becomes more and more prevalent as like private property increases and we'll see that throughout the societies yeah it's a stratification thing yeah yeah what we got next here we got some some sick burns of some other guys again you know this is angles and before him marx he's working off of marx's notes so they do some hating on a mr groat they call some some people cloistered bookworms which is a great new insult that i will be adopting (laughs) Um, tag yourself, I'm the cloistered bookworm. I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I think I also am. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, is this where he's making fun of them for thinking that the gentes came from mythology? I think so. I think he's like, that is very foolish. This is way older than the mythology that they themselves created with all its gods and demigods. Yeah, because like, how would that work? Again, it's the idea of like, we can't, we can't fuck each other guys <laughs> yeah so then you have all these you know gentes being like oh well we're descended from whoever and we're and it's like yeah okay that's it's legendary but whatever <laughs> today i mean it's similar in sort of you know the ancestral respectful or like rev- reverential sort of way of like um when we were looking at the haudenosaunee the animal gens and things those have like a you know a spiritual connotation everything like because of animism and stuff that that's probably you know it's 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 similar i think in in terms of if you had mythological ancestry or whatever i think so yeah i mean you even hear about it in things like origin stories for different greek cities of like yeah you got athens this is athena's house you know <laughs> yeah yeah and that carries forward i don't know it's just myth making like you see it in the Middle Ages with heraldry and stuff. You see it in the Age of the Nation State with, you know, founding mythologies and stuff. So everyone does it. <laughs> okay. I don't want to get in the weeds in this section. He really goes into it. And I think, like, it's not, I mean, it's different from the Haudenosaunee, but I don't think it was, like, that interesting. <laughs> <laughs> the, you mean the inner workings of stuff? Like the leaders and all that? Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't think it's super crucial. Uh, he he talks kind of about the role of its king figure of the, uh, well, the army leader, rather, the Basilius, and saying, like, this is a little different from a king and, you know, different powers and such like that. But what he kind of comes away with, I think, you see 
like we said, the beginnings of nobility with inheritance. You also see the rise of slavery, which I think is kind of the fulcrum here that the change in property relations that may, that will drive them into their next stage. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, there is a note that I have about before that every adult male member was a warrior. And so there wasn't really a need to have a public power separate from the people that you can use to go be cops against other people. And I think it really is the introduction of slavery that changes that equation of like, we suddenly have this huge group of people we can't control because guess what? They don't want to be slaves. And now we need a force to do that. So like when people say like cops are inherently racist, like this is why. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Uh, Because they're there to protect property and property is there to exploit people. And for a long time, and I would say currently still, bad people see other people as property. Yeah. One of the key points, I think, of the rise of slavery is, is the change of the nature of war from just rivalries boiling over to deliberate like wars of conquest. Yeah, yeah. With, with the Haudenosaunee, it was much more like, okay, like this guy wronged us in some way. We're going to go take care of that. Like it was, it was more of a one-off thing. And I think this is more of the introduction of like more territorial disputes and more of like, we're, we're trying to expand here. Which I think the Haudenosaunee did a little bit of that, but but less so. And I, I'm wondering, like, I think in the next section we get to that more, but, like, the expansion of the, the wartime role into becoming, like, the de facto leader. Right, yeah. He kind of le- leaves off the chapter with this cliffhanger for that, of the, the invention of the state. Uh, only one thing was wanting an institution which not only secured the newly acquired riches of individuals against the communistic traditions of the Gentile order, which not only sanctified the private property formerly so little valued and declared this sanctification to be the highest purpose of all human society, <laughs> but an institution which set the seal of general social recognition of each new method of acquiring property and thus amassing wealth at continually increasing speed, an institution which perpetuated not only this growing cleavage of society into classes, but also the right of the possessing class to exploit the non-possessing and the rule of the former over the latter. And this institution came. The state was invented. I mean, this is a great definition of the state. Mm -hmm. Like, I think that really puts it clearly. I think a lot of times people can have a hard time conceptualizing it outside of like, you know, I, I live in Texas. They issue me my driver's license or whatever, you know, like it is more helpful to look at it as a power structure uh, that really holds people back against other people. Uh, and again, like you can like literally as I was reading this paragraph, I was like, are they talking about cops? And then they end up with state. I'm like, oh, that's the same fucking thing, guys. Yeah. Well, if, <laughs> if you don't have those guys, what's what is the state? But just some old guys talking. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, they are integral to each other. So uh, unless your state is run by the people, that's really what you're working with. Yeah. <laughs> I was trying to find where this note was. Yeah, that's why you didn't see it, because you're doing the PDF, so there was a footnote that you didn't see. My footnotes were at the end of each section. Oh, that would have been great. Mine were at the very end altogether, and I was like, how the fuck am I going to cross-reference this? I'm not going to do yeah, that. Yeah. No, so I didn't. In that case, that's so that's why the HTML was, <laughs> was cooler was better in, for that. in that regard. That So that's where the Aztec thing was, is in the footnotes oh, of this okay. section where he says, like the Greek Basilius, so also the Aztec military chief has been made out to be a modern prince. The reports of the Spaniards, which were at first misinterpretations and exaggerations and later actual lies, were submitted for the 
first time to historical criticism by Morgan. He proves that the Mexicans were at the middle stage of barbarism, though more advanced than the New Mexico Pueblo Indians, and that their constitution, so far as it can be recognized in the distorted reports, corresponded to this stage, a confederacy of three tribes which had subjugated a number of other tribes and exacted tribute from them, and which was governed by a federal council and a federal military leader, out of whom the Spaniards made an emperor. Wow. I mean, yeah, you, you hear about the, like, Aztec, uh, like, empire. Uh-huh. Like, that that was a thing. It was kind of a an aggressive group. Right. But did any of that sound true of it being, like, a federal system and, like... No. But it is. Like, that's really strange. Um, the Aztec Empire, or the Triple Alliance, was an alliance of these three Nahua city-states of Tenochtitlan, Texcoco, and Tlacopan. And it is still re- really violent, militaristic uh, in terms of... Um, How they got to that Yeah, alliance, bossing maybe. these <laughs> other city-states around and demanding tribute in, in wealth and in people, you know, sacrifice. I mean, you know, it did have a lot of things, but it was this like elected leadership position too. the, the like quote unquote emperor was this title called the Wehuetlatoani, uh, like the Supreme Tatoani. Like it's, it's like the, the head of the heads, but it's like elected from these Tlatoke, like these, these leaders of the city States. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So that's like way more democratic than kind of, we've been taught of like, it was just like, it's, it's fucking Moctezuma, you know, like he's the guy in charge. Yeah. It's so strange. Like I had, I just did not know that at all. Teaching, <laughs> teaching history. And I was just like, what angles you, you went too far. Like that's, that's not true. Uh, Morgan <laughs> just made one up on you there and you just believed it. But no, apparently there you go. <laughs> wow. Crazy. Next society. We're running through these guys. We got the Athenians. What's up, Athens. So here's where we start to see some centralized action and the rise of the state. Boo. Athens, why? Why would you do this? Well, they had to because, well, they didn't have to, but they chose to do slavery. It seems like it's kind of a story of growing complexity that just gets out of hand. Athens as a city-state ends up becoming sort of the centralized government slash nation for the Greek tribes as they sort of start moving beyond just a loose confederation and needing to kind of centralize Athens kind of comes to the forefront there. And so they gave them more powers, right? Yeah, they end up with more power to kind of negotiate these problems. And you end up with a lot of people that he kind of refers to, you know, strangers or not like really Athenians in different ways, like enslaved people, for example, or for people who were formerly enslaved that are then freed or people who move there or whatever. They're not part of the gens and not really adopted by the gens, but they end up have, getting protections from like this sort of rising Athenian uh, quasi state. I mean, weren't like merchants and stuff included in this. And because you had more and more trade, you had a more mobile society in general. Like it wasn't just like, I, I lived in this forest my whole life. I'm going to fucking stay here. It now is like, I'm a merchant and I'm traveling and I need protection wherever I'm going. Yeah. And that was kind of one of the huge issues here is that there just wasn't any resort for those people. Like they, they, they had no rights. They had no protections because all of those were governed through the gens. Yeah. And so because the gens were founded on such a family group, of of ties 
when you start getting people who are not in that group, you're not necessarily, you know, looking out for each other all the time. <laughs> and and adding capitalism to that mix, obviously, you're not looking out for each other. Uh, so yeah, that's, that's when you get this introduction of a state. Yeah, well, and the, the rise of these social classes, in those first constitutions, where they where they draw up, you know, a state to do things, they say, okay, we're not going to have the gens govern our society, we're going to have it divided up into social classes. Here's where I think it would have been useful for him to combine this analysis with the economic analysis that comes later. Yeah, I I agree. I think uh, the reason we're moving through these sections so quickly is they are relatively short, and because they only focus on this kind of transitional period between running things like a family and running things like a state and how that interacts with economics. And it's like, I kind of wish he just smushed all these sections together. Like, okay, here we're going to talk about the Hodi Noshoni. Like here, we're gonna t- you know, like right. it was a little frustrating to have to jump back and forth. Like, oh yeah, okay, gotcha. Yeah, because later he'll be like, oh, and then there's the rise of money and all this stuff. And it, it makes a little bit more sense when it's explained in detail like that. So yeah, they developed the common Athenian civil law standing above the legal customs of the tribes and the gentes where even if you're not from there, if you're in that territory, then you get these rights. If you're a citizen, we should say, because of the huge rise of, of slavery, uh, he goes on to talk about it later. That It's like two thirds of society is enslaved. So they're not a part of this. Jesus, that's so many. Yeah, uh, but citizens anyway regardless of the gens, had rights within this civil constitution. Immediately, though, they are dividing the people up based on classes in terms of the constitution, which I think is like really mask off constitutioning here. (laughs) (laughs) The state is doing the most state thing ever, which is like, listen, we're going to treat you guys differently depending on whether or not you're nobility. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, So at least it's not like, you know, lying to us. You had the nobles, the farmers, and the artisans, and only the nobles could hold office, which he kind of says, you know, that shows that that sort of customary quasi-inheritance thing was firmly established by this point. Dang. Does that mean, are farmers then above artisans? I would definitely be an artisan. Uh, he doesn't, does he list it in an order? I, yeah, I couldn't tell if that was the order or if that just happened to be the order in which he wrote it. I would assume artisans above farmer. I would say artisans below. Because look, a snooty little artist. Eupetridae is good. That's the good people. And then geomoroi, those are like people of the land. Earth people. Yeah. (laughs) And then demi or joy is like semi people. You know, semi earth people or something. Oh no! People who only sort of make their living from the land. Oh bummer. Okay. But then maybe that's good. Maybe it's bad to be geo like fully of the land <laughs> can't believe you're from the land dude lame you got dirt coming Ugh. from everywhere man you got dirt under your nails like i've got clay under my nails big difference <laughs> <laughs> i'm clearly so much better anyway it sucks that they're doing this but it also like yeah that makes sense <laughs> and he also kind of sets up this antagonism that will play out as we as we see it unfold uh finally it proclaims the irreconcilable opposition between Gentile society and the state. The first attempt at forming a state consists in breaking up the Gentiles and dividing their members into those with privileges and those with none. And by further separating the latter into two productive classes and thus setting themselves up one against the other. Yeah, I thought that was very crucial. Like, hey, first things first. (laughs) You guys, you don't get to work together. Yeah, you're cooler than them and they're cooler than you. You should fight about it. Yeah, yeah. And, and, 
again, the reason this is happening is we have introduced a money economy here. Like we can no longer be chill with each other in, in the gens kind of fashion. Like we have all this mixing of people. We have just too many things to keep track of. Like we need to do this. Uh, then we have, as you know, we're dividing up into social class and everything in this civil constitution and Engels, you know, he has an, an admirable view of money and interest for a factory owner. You know, he, he kind of, he sounds like, like a millennial tri- struggling to afford rent here. Cause he goes <laughs> on a big rant, not a rant, I should say, but I mean, he, he really lays a lot of blame at the feet of money and usury or interest. Yeah. Yeah. Like it, I think it's fascinating. Like as soon as money is invented, like again, like we talked about this last episode, like as soon as livestock and being more stable is invented, we're like, Ooh, slavery. Let's do that. Yeah. <laughs> and then as soon as money isn't invented, we're saying, what if we had rent? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we're really, we need to cl- slow down these inventions, really stop and think about it. Like, hold on a second. We need rent. <laughs> we need debt. We need mortgages. Ugh. Some of my least favorite things in here. <laughs> uh, yeah. He says basically as soon as that shows up, you already have like the, the, Mortgages spring up side by side uh, and uh, widespread debt. It kind of goes unchecked. Uh, Small farmers end up in huge amounts of debt. They end up basically becoming sharecroppers, becoming tenant farmers. You're selling yourself basically to pay off your debt. Yeah, you sell. So what you do, you sell your land to the landowner and then they're like, great, you can work on the land as long as you're alive. You have to pay me money. You know, you have to pay me five-sixths of that and you get to keep one-sixth of it uh, and there you go good luck enjoy and then just like you said yeah we, we start to see people not just prisoner of war slavery which is also bad but like people just selling their children into slavery you know debt slavery that sort of thing i think i don't know if it's here maybe later like they had to have a law of like hey you can't sell your children into slavery and like think about it guys why do you do that why do you have to say that because people were doing it yeah and it's not, yeah, it's bad. It's not good for them to do that, but it's not like they woke up one day and said, man, I need like a fancy cloak. You know, I need a couple <laughs> of pinky rings. Like they were doing it to survive, you know, and also to see their kids survive. Like, I don't want yeah, you staying yeah. here starving. Yeah. At least there you'll get fed, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's not a, well, my kid really pissed me off today, so. You don't watch it, kid. I'm sure, sure some parent listeners are like, hey, listen, <laughs> if I could get rid of this guy for like an hour. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Can I rent them out? Uh, <laughs> Do you need someone to like mow your lawn? Uh, yeah. So I don't know. I thought that was interesting. The money thing basically operates. He'll get into this a little bit later too, but um, on the commodity principle. So it's like. Everything was fine when you were sort of mercantile, just kind of like trading stuff for its use. Well, we produce too much of this grain. We're just going to store it up for later, that sort of thing. But when everything gets so complex that people are no longer producing things for their use value of getting to consume the product directly, but the, or, you know, them or their wider society, but they're specifically growing things, producing things specifically to trade it. Yeah, it's no longer, hey, we need this. It's, hey, I can make money from this. Yeah, so it's, hey, abstractly, somebody needs this. I don't know where or why, 
but I'm going to produce as many of them as I can to get that out there. And so this transforms you from kind of a master of your product of this is something that I use and get a benefit from to, you know, the servant of the product of this is something I have to produce to get by. So it goes from nourishing you to putting you to the yoke. Then I think we see a, a gradual turn toward the state as things get crazier. Uh, the growing contradictions here that the gens have no idea what to do with. Like money is just basically completely outside of their sphere of governance at all. Like they're just like, I, I don't know. And within the gens, I thought was particularly interesting. You know, everything's been divided up into these classes. So within the gens, you have these nobles who are like, this is great. I'm making so much money now. Everyone's selling me their <laughs> stupid lands and they're giving me their crops after they've sold themselves as my slaves. It's fantastic. And then, you know, within the same gens, you're like, yeah, I don't think it's that fantastic because I'm your slave now. <laughs> I have not been doing well. I don't know if you've noticed. <laughs> yeah, like all of my kids, you know, they're slaves to different ones of you nobles, all within the gens or maybe in another gens. You know, it's it all sucks. They're basically unable to resolve that because they're, they're being torn apart. Like there's no decision-making we were talking earlier about um, consensus. There's just not an ability for that anymore. Yeah. Cause you can't consent to, Hey, I'm going to charge you rent or I'm going to make you a slave. Like none of those things can have consent. Yeah. Yeah. It really just degrades this kinship bond and turns it into, okay, we need a new thing to keep us glued together as a society. And that's the state. Yeah. Basically, some big change is needed. I mean, they had this civil constitution to kind of divide people up or whatever, but like there's no regulation going on about money and people are going crazy with it. The big change comes with, I guess, is embodied by, because we shouldn't say it's just this guy comes up with this idea. Obviously, he's <laughs> a product of the social forces and everything. And so he's the guy who puts it into words, into a constitution so long. Solon is remembered in traditional histories as like a lawgiver, which makes sense, kind of as, as a guy that sets things right. So what do you think? Did he, did he do a good job here setting things right? I mean, listen, I like his policy of clearing all debts. That's cool. I wish we would do that more. Pretty good. Good start. It's not, he didn't invent that also. That like is just a that thing. That was just what kings did every now and then. Yeah, it was crazy. Like people think, oh, this is a radical thing, but. Now they used to just knock him out every once in a while. Because for this exact reason, it would get too crazy. <laughs> like, guys, this is untenable. We're not doing this. Like, yeah, that was just a thing kings could do. Every Like, that happens in the Bible a bunch of times. Like, it's it's a very old thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was reading um, a, a few examples of this, of kind of in ancient Babylon and stuff like that, you know? And how, you know, there'd be like a new, a new emperor or something and... They'd put out a thing saying, like, we're forgiving all of these debts or whatever, canceling public debts, private debts. Some, You know, sometimes they do them at different times. I uh, saw one that was like, official creditors and tax collectors who had expropriated peasants should compensate them and return their property on pain of execution. Jesus. So they were, like, doing okay. some real mail hours there. That's amazing. Yeah. Oh, please. In cases where a creditor had taken some item of property using pressure. Unless he gave it back and or repaid its worth in full, he'd be put to death. Wow. 
bring it back. I mean, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like, let's put those Harvard guys up for <laughs> every every college is like all the uh, admin is sweating like, oh, shit. <laughs> uh, I mean, I, I like the quote in this section about Solon. All revolutions hitherto have been revolutions to protect one kind of property against another kind of property. So in in this case, it's Solon saying, okay, like, things are so crazy right now, I don't want everyone to lose all of their things, so, like, I'll clear the debts. Like, it's very much like, I'm doing this to keep this afloat kind of thing. Yeah, and kind of pitting the creditors and saying, sorry, guys, you lose this this round, like, <laughs> and give the debtors a win. Yes, yeah. And uh, Engels kind of says, so this has sort of always been possible. Like, any revolution's going to involve this. This is a plain truth is that for two and a half thousand years, it's been possible to preserve private property only by violating property. And kind of laying bare, like, how did, you know, how did these guys get this? You know, what happened is they were enslaving people. They were taking people shit. And when we are doing a revolution to give that back to the people, yeah, we're doing some violating in property, but that's how property is ever like is ever quite, that's how it's preserved is by uh, taking it in the first place from somebody. Yeah. Yeah. I really love that distillation of like, this was immorally gained. And so <laughs> it's cool if we break some rules to get it again. Easy come, easy go. Solon does kind of a class, his own class division. So he divides it up into these four groups that, I mean, they're divided based on wealth, which is not good, but it seems pretty democratic within that. Yeah. I, I think, like, you could still vote on things, and you could still, like, it seemed like because the, the lower class, there were so many of them, like, they had a good amount of power. It also, like, informed kind of their military organization, which I thought was weird. But all in all, like, my takeaway from this of, like, dividing up by classes, and, and it does seem like the, the first class had more rights, this to me is liberalism. Like, mm-hmm. let's put some limits on capitalism. Let's try to ease some of the pain. Um, and, but we're still going to divide you up by classes. <laughs> yeah. This is like FDR stepping in to save capitalism. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. He kind of goes on to say, you know, this works for a while. <laughs> uh, but it then again, keeps it, it like, like liberalism, it can put a bandaid on things for a little bit, but it's not changing the material conditions. So I mean, not changing them, but not, it's failing to stop the changes in the material conditions, we should say. And so. Things keep evolving kind of out of their control. Yeah. I mean, you start getting into the idea of landed property being a major source of wealth. Again, you still have that huge slave population. Like there's still a lot of rapidly, like just brand new industries that like no one has any rules or ideas of how to run. So like people are just doing nasty shit. Rampant usury. Uh, You move away from like kind of the artisan handcrafts and you go into just like, hey, let's do it all on slave labor. Basically, your your gens were becoming useless and scattered all around the area. And so they just kind of ceased to exist. Uh, so they're no longer a political body. Mm, yeah. And that's when you have the you have things fall apart into just like the nobility getting everything back for a little bit. And then you have Cleisthenes putting in together a new constitution where you just ignored the old tribes altogether and you organized everything based completely on territory. 
Yeah, and it made sense for this much more transient kind of society. Not everyone's staying in the same place anymore. Okay, now where you live determines the laws, which like, okay, <laughs> sounds familiar. Yeah, it's a very nation state, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, at this time, he does kind of make a clarification that uh, that the, the army, the armed forces were just popularly provided. It was like a, you know, a people's army, he says, of just, you know, citizens, I suppose. And they were used kind of to keep the slave population in check, which was humongous, as we mentioned earlier. When they start to develop police, they say, he says that... This is so funny. He says that Athenians considered police duty so degrading that he would rather be arrested by an armed slave than himself have any hand in such despicable work. That's so fucking funny. Like, they had to mandate the idea of the police because everyone's like, I'm not going to fucking do that. Yeah, no way. Make <laughs> the slaves do that. That's awful. Oh, that's insane. It, what's interesting about this section is I think we're taught, especially here in the States, that like Athens is like the birthplace of democracy. <laughs> and you think of it as like, okay, everybody gets a vote. Like, cool. There is a little bit of that, like he, he talks about like the council and if you're a citizen, you have the right to vote. But like when you look at like who is actually a citizen, even just the fucking slave population being so large, that's a lot of people who ain't voting. And you also had a ton of like partially freed slaves. You had immigrants, you had uh, so many people that didn't fall into that. It was very undemocratic, even though we're taught that it's very democratic. Yeah. You know, talking about just how widespread this was. Uh, later on in the economics chapter, it says, as against the 365,000 slaves, the 90,000 Athenian citizens constitute only a privileged class. So 90,000 versus 365,000. Yeah, and that really becomes their downfall uh, because as you have more and more slave population, people are like, I'm not going to fucking do that work. Like that's slave work kind of stuff. And so like you have this real fall in like labor among other people. Not a good move. Not just in terms of <laughs> no. doing slavery. Typically not good. No, I'm against it. Also Can't take just care. a bad idea. He also says that uh, free citizens end up being out-competed, like, work-wise by yeah. slaves. Yeah, like, there's free labor there. You're not going to get a job. Yeah, that, that echoes a contemporary view of Engels' Uh, the kind of classic Republican Party view, like pre right pre Civil War, brand new Republican Party. One of, one of their big arguments was for like the yeoman farmer and you know that those sorts of people who would be like farm laborers and stuff. Is how can you compete with someone who doesn't cost anything in terms of labor? Capitalism is always going to go to the cheapest labor source, and if one of them's free, yeah, I think that's the one. Yeah. And that was that was one of the kind of slogans of that old, hilariously departed from its current state <laughs> was uh, was free soil, free labor, free men. Yeah, they don't want any of those things now. Yeah, <laughs> I don't think so. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Kind of an interesting echo from Engels there. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Okay, moving on to the next section. We got the gens and the state in Rome. Moving on from the Greeks on into Rome. He gets like really nerdy oh my god i felt like like i, I think i texted you during this part of yeah. like the obsession with the roman empire is my roman empire like i'm like why are people so into this <laughs> yeah 
he was one of those guys. Angles was thinking about the Roman Empire a lot. He yeah, he's just like, huh? Sorry, I didn't hear you. I was thinking about the Roman Empire when his <laughs> lady asked him. He gets so into the terminology and into all the different groups and types of people, and it's just oh my god! I think this was my most skimmed section. Yeah. I even characterized a big chunk of this. So, okay, does, he does get into like some of the laws and stuff of the gens as an institution and says kind of, okay, can't you see this is similar to what we saw in the Greeks and, you know, that sort of thing. Okay. I did like his detective work that he really, he really puts into this whole question of inheritance with the agnatic inheritance. At some point, I don't, I'm not going to try to quote it directly, but he's saying like women lost their inheritance upon marriage like agnatic inheritance meaning their father's possessions could pass to them if they didn't have sons or whatever but they lost that right upon marriage there was a particular like ancient roman source that he used from livy i want to say that said oh these senators were talking about this particular case it only makes sense it was an outlier yeah and i was like that's so cool to like be that far afield of what you're talking about here and then still be able to tie that back into like okay yeah so that must mean that usually you could not marry in your gens and then this was an exception i don't know it was i was a fellow rabbit hole guy uh (laughs) (laughs) yeah yeah he got really into this one this one like language quirk and was like okay here let me explain my my secret theory (laughs) yeah (laughs) okay i did think it was interesting that the the ways in which the the gens organization like how they operated was you know so similar to the ancient greeks that's to be expected the romans basically copied the greeks in everything (laughs) fanboys yeah but in to compare it as well to the haudenosaunee and again you know obviously they're operating on in completely different parts of the world or whatever, but that material conditions tend to drive societies in these similar ways. I thought was kind of interesting. Then when he starts to talk about the, the Roman kingdom and he says, okay, uh, before we get into what he says, the received history of Rome uh, is kind of based on its founding myths. Uh, Cause historians like that. Yeah. Romulus, you got Remus, you got wolf titties. <laughs> yeah, they, what's not to like? They found it. I th- maybe Romulus, you know, gets to serve as because I think he kills Remus. They they fight over like the where they're drawing the boundary line, and someone steps over it or something stupid. You know, one of those ancient uh, like biblical type stories of people just braining each other for something really dumb. <laughs> I think he's supposed to become the first legendary king, and then they have like a series of kings after him. And the last guy is so outrageous, Tarquinius Superbus. I this is my favorite doodle, Superbus. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it basically looks like the magic school bus with a cape. <laughs> yeah, that's that was that was his uh, his logo. Logo, yeah, his logo, his crest. <laughs> Here, I'm gonna send you a picture. I'm posting. <laughs> if you are a patron, you'll you'll get the image of this. But if not, you're just gonna have to wonder what what does it look like. He's so bad that they kill him because he's he like. You know, in the legends, like rape someone, like a noble woman, lo- noble, uh, noble woman, a, a nobleman's daughter or something. They kill him, and that's the end of the Roman monarchy. And then they get together and say, "We're going to make a republic, and we're never going to have the abuse of kings again." You know, and that's 
that's the mythical kind of transition. And then obviously from there you had the, the more historical fall into empire, but that received history kind of presents the, the monarchy as this inherited, you know, what we think of as like a medieval sort of monarchy or an absolute sort of monarchy. And what he spells out here is kind of similar to what we saw with the Aztecs is not really, you know? Yeah. So like Rex, we think, okay, that's just King, but it's much more equivalent to like the, the role of like the chief in the Haudenosaunee organization of, of power here of like, it's, it's a much more executive branch kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah. Kind of like, he spelled, he even says like, this corresponds exactly to the Greek Basilius. So it's this, yeah, military leader. That's just not at all what we get in the traditional histories, which was another one that I was like, wait, hold on, hold on, hold on. The Roman monarchy, <laughs> what are you talking about? That was like, cause it's held up as like, you know, this, this sin of depravity that, you know, you start with these noble kind of good Kings and you descend just like you see with the Roman empire, the five good emperors descending to commonness and stuff of like, I think that's, to, to get a little off topic here, that's why so many guys, especially, I guess, get drawn into the Roman Empire as, like, such a, like, thing they know too much about is because it does have a lot of cool, like, and kind of classic uh, motifs that you see in Western culture of, like, morality tales and shit like that. Oh, totally. Like, we lift so much of our, our idea of, I mean, myths, like, that's where myths for a mm-hmm. lot of Western society comes from. Yeah. That's why I was like, wait, no, come on. That's not true. But yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I mean, my big takeaway from the Roman structure of things was, you know, TLDR, citizenship basically equals military service plus how much money you have. Like, that's how we determine where you fall in things. I mean, similar to the Greek system we talked about with Solon. Exactly. Uh, they, They really divided up essentially the same way in terms of classes based on wealth. Then you have, of course... Our class, tag yourself, we're the sixth class, the proletarians. (laughs) Hell yeah. Less property than the lower class and those exempt from military service and taxes. So no war for us, baby. Yeah, thank God. Go and get your ass ran over by the Persians. (laughs) That's fine. No thanks. (laughs) But you don't don't have any citizen rights, so. (laughs) Bummer. And and then again, you have this, this large immigrant population Am I right in the the plebes? Is that what that means? The plebeians? Mm-hmm. That's where the plebes, like, phrase comes from, yeah. Or, uh, okay. Oh, he, he just says plebs, yeah. Um, he says plebs. Plebs and populace. Part of the populace Romanus, the real Roman people. And then the other ones were, yeah, the class that was excluded from all public rights, the plebs. Oh, that's us. We're the proletariat guys? Yeah, we're we're just plebs. That's kind of the the class system as it ends up divided up there. I didn't have a lot different in that one that really stood out as separate from the Greeks. I think it kind of was supposed to be a mirror image. Yeah, I agree. Um, And similarly, like a conflict that's being resolved in favor of a state over the old gens, just kind of they're they're fading from from relevance, really. Then we get to talk about... The Celts and the Germans. <sighs> Sorry, this is the part where I'm like, there's just so many of these groups. Why are we reading about all these groups? Well, he's, you know, classic historian. He's got to make a bunch of examples of his point. <laughs> yeah, he's like, you can't prove me wrong. Look how many people I've cited. To play devil's advocate, there are way more than uh, societies that he 
did not talk about here compared to... Yeah, yeah, you're right. But, you're right. All right, give me the highlights on these Germans and Celts. Okay, we'll start with um, the Welsh, because they're involved in kind of the Celtic people he's talking about here. And if you were a woman in Wales, and your, your man had bad <laughs> breath, you could oh. kick his ass to the curb. I mean, good for her. I get it. <laughs> well, okay, hold on. The bad breath thing, like, yeah, she can do that. Like, it was very easily terminable. Uh-huh. But... It says, if after the separation, you, you remarry and your first husband comes a Colin, you have to go back with him, even if he's got the stinky breath. That was some Franco-Spain shit. <laughs> yeah, for real. Oh, what are we doing here? That was bad. Don't do that. Whales. So we'll take some cues from the Haudenosaunee, but maybe only a few cues from the Welsh. Yeah, yeah. And also, like... If the man ends things, he gives her back some stuff. But if the woman woman ends things, she gets less stuff. Yeah, what the hell? Also, you had the right to beat the wife if she committed adultery or something. Although that was only one of three occasions where you were allowed to do that. <laughs> oh, goody. They also, this was interesting. I spent some time reading about this of the uh, Gober Merch or the Marchetta or the Marquette in different languages, the bride, the... Uh, the price, like the price to avoid the right of first night. Yeah, yeah. This this feels like it's related to the dowry almost. Yeah, there's um, kind of scholarly debate. And there's a big proportion of historians that, I guess you should call historians and anthropologists and really anybody in this, you know, social sciences of the past sort of study, uh, that are suspicious of the right of first night or the droid to senor or whatever term you want to use for it uh, being a thing. There's a large group of them that think that it's not universal, but it's pretty substantial that say that it was mostly a, a medieval or later, not necessarily medieval, but like a early modern, I guess, sort of myth of, to show how backward things what things were before. Okay. Okay. But I, okay. I kind of, I can understand that it is also on, you know, in the same Wikipedia page that I was reading about that on, they were talking about all these different instances in different societies and different, you know, Oh, it was recorded here in this, you know, early modern source or whatever, say referencing it. It's like referenced in culture in lots of different societies. You know, it's, it's, a big plot point in a lot of different stories and stuff. It's kind of weird that everybody would all make this up. And I do kind of like Engels's like economic tie of this, of kind of saying like that people were sort of buying off, you know, with uh, kind of a dowry or kind of a payment to uh, the King or, you know, whatever leader they had in that place of like, as he was saying earlier, that kind of homage to the old group marriages, sort of saying, well, this is the price we're going to, I'm going to separate from that and have monogamy. And so here's, here's my penance to pay for that. Yeah. Yeah. Of saying we're recognizing that we're losing something from this gens group. Mm -hmm. 
by giving away this woman. And so, I mean, that's where we get so many traditions. I mean, bridal traditions of giving away, you know, like you're transferring someone to a different gens in this case. Yeah. So, uh, more learned listeners, if you've got the, the Wikipedia page did not a hundred percent convince me. It did shake me and oh, not shake me. Oh, wow. But like, <laughs> You were really shook afterwards. <laughs> it did. Yeah, it did make me think, I don't know if Engels is right on this one, because like I said, it seemed like most or the majority, shall we say, of historians and stuff were kind of like skeptical that that was ever a thing. But I thought Engels made some good points. And I think that there were just that many examples in culture that I was like, yeah, that seems like a weird thing to just all make up collectively. Right. Uh, so anyway, yeah, he's talking about that kind of the, the condition of women in these societies. Uh, he talks about Ireland as well. I think in Ireland, he talks about how it would be, to, he wants to go back there and live there again or something. He was like, <laughs> I loved it. It was great. I was hanging out in the village. Uh, I don't remember that. Uh, was it in a footnote? Let's see. Maybe. Yep. <laughs> it was in a footnote. It's a footnote. <laughs> During a few days spent in Ireland, I realized afresh to what an extent the country people still live in the conceptions of the gentle Gentile period. It's just like, it was nice, you know? Oh, <laughs> Okay. He's like, they looked out for each other, essentially, is what he was yeah, saying. Yeah, yeah. Lovely. Sorry if there's a dog barking here. Oh, uh, Dipper is... He's a dummy. He's chiming in. He says, I'm not one of the lower classes that can't speak at assemblies. <laughs> he also loves Ireland. Yeah, he's an, an Ireland pup. I guess he wouldn't be, right? He's Pyrenees? That's not Pyrenees? even... Pyrenees? That's no. like Spanish, French. Not even close. He's Celtic, maybe, depending on <laughs> what particular area anyway what do we got uh, we got scotland up next that was funny because you were texting me about this and i hadn't gotten to this point i'm like what the when the hell am i talking about scotland <laughs> yeah i was like just wait there's even more as much as you're like why are we getting so specific about rome just wait <laughs> <laughs> you've got so many other cultures to get through so yeah he uh. talks about the picts up in scotland and everything else various examples of mother right as well and uh, something about saying like, oh, it'd be kind of good if we did more research in this area. I was like, I, I do not care. Let's move on. Yeah, I'm good, man. You did plenty. <laughs> he did a lot of etymological sort of. <laughs> he things. really did. Uh, I mean, he just, you know, has a, a nerd academic go, which is great because he doesn't really come across as like a. OK, most of what I've read of Engels is like economic shit and like, you know, polemics and stuff and like, you know, political works. But he, do, he plays a really good hand in in terms of not just history but anthropology uh linguistics like he's just a nerd yeah you can really tell he's passionate about this like he translates so much stuff it's it's interesting stuff but it's also like what are we doing here <laughs> yeah there's so much yeah translation and things like that yeah oh speaking of translations and germans uh we got another note on uh our first episode so remember when i was talking about the getting the horns oh yeah yeah yeah, so this is in reference to the, the German versus French literature thing of, like, French people cheat on each other and German people uh, don't or something like that. But they're more boring was kind of the, the thesis there. So it was the man, in, in the way we explained it anyway originally, to give you the wrong version first. In the, in the German instance, it's like the man doesn't really do anything, doesn't realize his dreams in life, so his the fantasy tale for him is getting the girl or getting to do, you know, realize his dreams. And then the French one, the French man like just goes and gallivants. And so he gets the horns, but what is the real thing? 
someone responded to to one of our tweets about the episode and said in german marriage the wife wears the pants and in the french the husband gets the horns during that time horns was a common symbol of the cuckold uh so when a wife was cheating on the husband he was said to grow horns i mean really makes you think about biblical depictions of moses huh? oh <laughs> yeah i know that's like a translation error but like it'd be really funny <laughs> <laughs> Uh, but yeah, apparently that's a common motif in literature before the 20th century. And yeah, so thank you to uh, Twitter user Coke Hegel, H-E-G-E-L. Hegel, yeah. Hegel, there we go. The one and only Hegel, who Mark stood on his head. Oh, okay. Well, thanks for that. We love, I mean, I love a linguistic mystery solved, so I'm, I'm here for it. That said, we're skipping over some linguistic stuff here in. Yeah, I mean, this it's section. interesting, but we're here for communism. Yeah. Uh, Next up, we have kind of the rise of kingship is what I get to next. He goes on kind of a lot about like the military leadership and stuff in different societies, how that all plays out. But the main group he ends up focusing on is the Germanic military commanders, their transition uh, to eventually becoming kings. Uh, The way he lays it out is essentially that these military commanders were always kind of vying for power their own personal power that they were, he says the Supreme military commander was already aiming at the position of tyrant as among the Greeks and Romans and sometimes secured it. But these fortunate usurpers were not by any means, absolute rulers. They were, however, already beginning to break the fetters of the Gentile constitution. He's kind of saying that the Germanic tribes, like the Franks and everyone else, those military commanders were already kind of looking for a way to sort of grow their role. And he says they eventually end up being able to do that when they take over the Roman Empire. Uh, And then the importance of the retinues, I think, is interesting. Yeah. So this is like groups of soldiers. Yes. Yeah. So having come into possession of these huge uh, territories in, in terms of taking over the Roman Empire and like it's not like one group got the whole thing. I mean, they don't even get the whole Roman empire because the Eastern empire survives as the Byzantines, the chunks that they do get are still massive in comparison to what they ruled over before. And it's a lot of outsiders, which will be important. These military commanders are relying on a different set of advisors, basically uh, slaves, uh, freedmen, uh, these retinues of these like, you know, just kind of strong men kind of that they, they're, they're favorites that they like, you know, their buddies, their bros to maintain them that, and, and to keep gathering people who want to be in your retinue. You have to be cool. You have to like give them shit. You have to plunder. In other words, this to me conjured up a very medieval image or like a game of Thrones image of like, here's me, here's my guys. Like they've pledged themselves to me. We're going to go fight together. We're going to go plunder together, like that kind of thing. Oh, yeah. And that's that's what he's trying, I think, to evoke, is that that's where they come from. That's also, interestingly, where he says the from w- the stock from which later nobility was drawn. Yeah, yeah. I, I think is a great point of, like, fucking the reason <laughs> there were kings is just, like, fucking Grog and his friends decided to go beat some people up. Yes, it was theft. They were just plunderers. They were just gangsters fighting over turf. 
That's all it is, y'all. And I, th- I mean, yeah, I think he makes a really good uh, point there. And then finally at the end, he ties it up and says, okay, so like we got these guys, these kind of Germanic popular kings sort of thing. Because, you know, it's it's still kind of based in this Gentis sort of structure in a way. Because the interesting thing with the Germanic ones is you don't really have a real state. So you have like this king sort of situation being set up, but you still have the Gentis really in control. You don't have like class really. There was never, you know, a Solon stepping in saying, here's your classes, right? So you don't have this outside force. You still have kind of a popular king. That's happening at the same time you have the the Roman kingdom, the heroic age Greeks. So that that's kind of their equivalent. And so once the Greeks have moved past that into government, once the Romans have moved past that into government and state, then they're going to get beat up by this kind of previous stage uh, of the the popular kings of the Germanic tribes. That, does that make sense? Like they didn't get as far as maybe the Greeks and Romans yeah. in terms of building a state, but they're the ones that took them over right. or took them out. He refers to them as the upper stage of barbarism. Again, mm-hmm. meaning the best of intentions. <laughs> <laughs> All right. And that's what I've got for that section. Yeah. I really did not have a lot of notes in this section. Again, interesting stuff, but like very specific. So if you're into this, like, Go for it, man. I bet there's some cool stuff. <laughs> okay, we got the formation of the state among Germans. We got a lot of Germans here. <laughs> you got a lot of Germans. He does a lot of math. He gets to a number of six million. Uh, Yeah. And pff, I mean, very approximate. All of this stuff is. Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> he says, okay, you got teeming masses of Germans. They want someplace to go. Uh, they're on the move uh, and, and shit was bad in the Roman empire. I think that was kind of my main takeaway from where he's talking about late stage Rome here. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I wrote a note of this sounds depressingly familiar of <laughs> <laughs> general impoverishment, decline of commerce, handicraft and art, fallen population, decay of the towns, relapse of agriculture to a lower level. Such was the final result of Roman world rule. The more the empire declined, the higher rose the taxes and levies, the more shamelessly the officials robbed and extorted. Wow, yeah, where have I heard that before? Yeah, another thing along those lines, the Roman state had become a huge, complicated (laughs) machine exclusively for bleeding its subjects. Taxes, Mm. states, imposts, and tributes of every kind pressed the mass of the people always deeper into poverty. The pressure was intensified until the exactions of governors, tax collectors, and armies made it unbearable. That was what the Roman state had achieved with its world rule. It gave as the justification of its existence that it maintained order within the empire and protected it against the barbarians without. But its order was worse than the worst disorder. And the citizens who it claimed to protect against the barbarians longed for the barbarians (laughs) to deliver them. I mean, I have days where I'm longing for barbarians, not just like in a, a sexy romance novel <laughs> way, but you know. <laughs> yeah, we but, all yeah. do that. I mean, barbarians, but. <laughs> Who doesn't? Never wants a little death by snoo snoo. <laughs> Save me from empire collapse, barbarians. <laughs> Save me. Well, that's essentially what Engel says happens here. But I, I really like that of like the mechanisms that allowed because it's so dialectic the mechanisms that allowed rome to expand to its great extent you know and 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 he kind of does this weird 
I, I don't know what his take is on like the emptiness of Rome where he's talking about like its culture. Yeah, the half-baked culture provided no substitute. It expressed no nationality, only the lack of nationality. Yeah. I mean, once again, (laughs) like, if you just want to, like, I don't know, feel less crazy, this might be a good section to read just of like, oh, okay, this is a decline of empire, looks like, gotcha. (laughs) This to me was weird though i mean i know that the romans they they adopted a lot of local cultures and everything like that but they also i thought had their own you know that it it seemed a little despondent and like too much talking about this creative energy and stuff it's like to me that wasn't as material of analysis but it it makes a certain amount of sense I think it makes sense. I think if you look at, you know, the Greeks, obviously the forebears here, you know, the idea of like Hellenism of like, okay, we're going to go take over your shit. You can still kind of do your thing, but like, we're going to take over your shit. And like Rome was like, hey, we love that stuff. We're going to do that too. You Mm -hmm. know, of like, yeah, you're Roman. So you get like the aquifers and stuff, but like, you can kind of do your own thing. Like, we're not going to fucking do too much to mess with your culture. So it really was this, It I, I like the way they put it of like, it's not so much about like, yes, I'm Roman. Here are the things you need to know about being Roman. It's like, well, I'm not not Roman, you know? <laughs> <laughs> and then what happens when your aquifers start shutting down? It's like, well, what the fuck are we doing here? <laughs> right. Yeah. Because I mean, for a while, while everything is still in growth, and maybe that's a good way to look at it is, gosh, we're studying like the rise and fall of the Roman Empire here. Like this is relevant. But that's a good way to look at it, I guess, is like. You know, while it's growing, it, it fuels itself. It's it, it makes sense. Yeah. It makes sense. It's that Monty Python sketch where they're with a, you know, the People's Liberation Front of Judea is meeting and they're like, you know, we got to get the Romans out of here. What do they ever done for us? It's like, well, what about the roads? Oh, yeah, apart from the roads. <laughs> Just ask the roads. You know, and they're like, well, what about the, the public baths? Oh, yeah, of course, of course. You know, and they just kind of increasing list uh, sketch. Yeah, you know, in, in those times... I think in Pax Romana and everything, like, you know, for a lot of people anyway, it was, it, they, they saw some benefits from it, from, for the non-enslaved people in that society. But then, yeah, as, as that falls off, as there's no capability to conquer, to plunder more, because that was the big thing. I mean, they were just like plundering places. Uh, <laughs> and then, you know, using those to build cool shit. Once that dries up, it's like, okay, well. Now you guys are just We're not even us. friends. Yeah. We're not friends. We're not related like the gens. We're just like, we don't want to be here. <laughs> so I guess, yeah, that that's a good... Thank you for talking that through with me of why <laughs> that made sense. <laughs> Anytime. So yeah, now people are having to just pay a bunch of money just to feed far off people living a life of luxury in comparison to them. And they're like, what the fuck? Included in this kind of breakup of society... Uh, is the failure of the latifundia. Yeah, I, I could use a little explanation here on on the idea of slavery outliving itself. Essentially, the latifundia depended upon a prosperous empire. Either you ran a ranch, uh, you know, pasture, didn't need that many people, that many slaves there to run it, or a country estate where you, uh, I mean, a plantation, I mean, you had lots and lots of slaves working that. These were done may either to make a lot of money at town markets or to just produce luxury goods for the owner themselves. 
Uh, and with the decline of urban life, as we were saying, the aqueducts and everything are, are collapsing and people are moving from these cities that require lots of infrastructure to feed to the countryside where they can feed themselves directly. As that declines, your markets for latifundia decline, you're all of a sudden feeding, maintaining expensive slaves for no market. Okay, so like your old plan was I live in country, feed the city, but now that city is falling apart, who am I feeding? Uh, okay, your old plan was actually I live in city, but my, you know, my estates all over the country, you know, feed the cities and that's how I make my money and that, you know, to go to parties and shit. But now as those as those are declining and as your own, you know, you're more precarious in this ruling class sense, you don't feel like you have the spare funds to even say, well, I'll just keep it for my own luxury. Like it's, it's tenuous. Things are only getting worse. Uh, and people start just basically doing away with this. But the problem at that part, at the, at that point when the Latifundia no longer can pay off for these large landowners, uh, they start breaking this up and selling off the parcels. Uh, basically just, you know, <laughs> selling anything that isn't nailed down and making off with the profits, just rats abandoning a sinking ship. The land is broken up. It's sold to either to stewards to maintain kind of the same system on a smaller scale or to tenants who are the forerunners kind of, of, of medieval serfs. They, they're like sort of tied to the land in a way, but, but they're not quite there. They're not in complete serfdom yet. I mean, I would, I would say we still have some things in, held in common here of like woods and pastures. This is before the enclosure movement kind of stuff yes for sure and uh to kind of add the fuel to the fire with the decline but not extinction of slavery and the widespread uh slavery while not profitable anymore so you can't get slaves to do things and make money so you don't do that uh, you also no one wants to do the things you want them to do for hire because they see that as slave work yeah, yeah. So you have this just collapse of work. <laughs> yeah. It's just like the countryside just goes dead um, oh in terms gosh. of producing anything at all. And uh, it's chaos. Um, so small peasants, entire frontier communities are looking for any sort of help in this situation. I'm, because the, the big thing here is that the government is still asking for money. Can you imagine at this point being still having the audacity? I mean, that's how I feel when I pay taxes. It's February. I'm about to have to do that. Yeah. That's how I feel. Like, really? You're still asking me for money and right you're now? like, for what? What do you any? What do you do anymore? Like, you're just <laughs> bombing people. That's all you're at doing. At this point, this is just like, can I please bomb some you're people? You're bombing people. That's you're it. deporting people. That's that's your function now. You're an yeah, insurance like, no company. Thanks. Uh, it was um, my man Krugman. Who mm, back in the day, yeah, back in the day, he described kind of complimentarily, actually, the U.S. as an insurance company with an army. And oh, I God. think that that's more and more true all the time, but I hate it more and more. Yeah. Who was like, you know, who really deserves guns and the right to kill people <laughs> is my insurance company. Yeah. That, let's let's give them more power over me. Yeah. You know, pretty much every day. I think he's he's right. He's more and more right with each passing day. But. It sucks. <laughs> In a bad way. <laughs> um, uh. But yeah, no, they, they keep showing up for money. So the hard pressed, 
you know, people in the countryside in those frontier communities and the small peasants and stuff, uh, you know, who own a little bit of land or whatever, they seek help from this because it's not just regular taxes. It's like, and you know, you got to pay my extra fee and st- it's corruption and shit. So they seek local strongmen, kind of the origins of your future feudal lords here. They sell their land for the right to use it for their lifetime and kind of get that protection from people. So that guy's now going to have to deal with the assholes from the government sort of thing. In exchange, you can just kind of, you know, go back to what you were doing, doing some farming. When the Germans roll in the Germanic tribe, not like the Germans, Germans speaking, German, <laughs> but like the Germanic tribes roll in conquering these Roman provinces, uh, they find basically the gens system of government that they've been relying on. All right. does not work when they have a conquered subjugated population because <laughs> what gens are they? They're not. <laughs> yeah. They are not like happy to be here. <laughs> right. So essentially they have to say, okay, well, our military leader gets fully transitioned from that military leader sort of thing to a full on king, the king of the Franks. We got some, some Charlemagne shit. Uh, yeah. These are the ancestors to Charlemagne. Okay. Uh, Charles Charlemagne's Martel is like his, literally Charles Martel is, is Charlemagne's grandpa. Oh, okay. <laughs> and he's like a general slash king. He's, he's very much of this military commander sort of thing. There's a Charlemagne tie-in. <laughs> For those Charlemagne fans, fans out there. Yeah. Anyway, he sets up his new nobility. And what do they start doing? They just start stealing uh, the undistributed land and parceling it out to his personal retinue. Uh-huh. Again, they're just like fucking hitting people with clubs <laughs> and taking their shit. <laughs> yeah. Uh, that's just that's what they do. They're just like. That's great. We need, I mean, cause you got to pay your hitters, you know, you got to pay mm-hmm. your top guys. I mean, rule number one, if you guys ever end up jumping timelines, consciousness is all together and you end up an em- emperor of some civilization or whatever, first of all, give it up, but you can't find yourself to do that. Okay. You have to run this thing. Well, pay your troops first, hundred percent. Otherwise you're overthrown. So <laughs> yeah, you're not going to be in charge for long. Yeah. That. Interesting thing, I think, is that pretty much shortly thereafter, the Germanic kings, you know, the Franks and everyone, they go to war and and they, they set about doing wars of conquests because that's what they do. They want more stuff. Yeah. They need to plunder <laughs> more. And, and let's not degrade them and say, oh, these barbarians, you know, such a setback from the Romans. Because what were the Romans doing the entire time they were around? The same fucking thing. Uh, Okay. Here, the Romans say it. It was wars of defense because the Mm. Romans, you know. uh, The original Americans. Yeah. The original Americans in the (laughs) sense that they never fought a war of conquest by God, uh, which was some quote of some from some newspaper guy in like the 1800s about the Mexican-American war. (gasps) Uh, Are you kidding me? The one where we got a huge fucking (laughs) chunk of territory. Yeah, uh, I don't okay. recall the specifics. I just remember it was something in people's history. That That's I, so It funny. was like a chapter title or something. It was great. Um, <laughs> yeah, so, so I mean, you know, the Romans were doing the exact same thing the whole time, conquering various buffer states and keeping on doing that. Yeah, okay. The Germanic kingdoms and stuff do the same thing. Engel says, this sucks. It drives the peasantry into the ground, kind of, you know, the same way that they were under the Romans. 
Yeah, this was interesting. Like you see a huge decline in the number of like regular ass peasants, <laughs> like free peasants, basically. And again, a huge rise in slavery. There's looking at this this uh, region, uh, this abbey near Paris. And in Charlemagne's time, you had 2,788 households. Out of these people, you had 2,080 serfs. Like full time, you're tied to the land. Uh, Thirty five like semi free peasants. So you're maybe you're working off a debt or something. Mm-hmm. Two hundred and twenty slaves, and the remaining eight people were free, like actually free tenants. Damn. <laughs> like what is going on? What's how are your peasants doing? Jeez, just completely, completely liquidated, completely converted over into these semi free. Of various states or not free at all populations. It's part of this trend that we saw earlier where kind of as stuff was breaking down, people were turning to strongmen. I mean, people continue to do that, he says, for the new nobility, which is just elevated, um, you know, rows of the of the king. <laughs> strongmen with nicer swords. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> you know, so they, they start selling themselves to them and to the church that starts mm-hmm. to develop these humongous... Uh, holdings and, and really uh, emerges from the making bank. Yeah, they they they're there's a reason why you know the communists of Engels times are so anti-clerical, anti-church is because these guys were like living it up. They robbed everybody blind. Yeah, and so just like we're saying that fucking sucks. These you know kings and their noble cronies are ripping everybody off, preying on their instability and getting them to sell themselves into serfdom. Guess what? The church was doing that, too. And, you know, yeah, nowadays, in a lot of respects, a lot of churches try to focus more on their spiritual messages and stuff while still definitely having, like, this property mm, imbalance, yeah. I would argue. I would say so. <laughs> it was it was way worse then. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, they end up selling themselves out kind of, uh, they become tenants, they end up serfs within a few generations, and Engels is like, yep, this is just kind of like late Rome, but... <laughs> different guys. Yeah, it's a little bit different. His argument here, his economics argument, is that the level of production, whatever economic stage your society is in, is going to rip your society toward whatever social stratification and property distribution it needs. Or it demands, rather. So the... Franks come into the game and they're, you know, this gentee society and everything. It's more egalitarian and all that. When they end up in charge of an empire like this, they get got. They get just, you know, just like cloned. It's like uh, they got swallowed up by Kirby and <laughs> they end up kind of like the, the, the Roman Germanic hybrid. Yeah, like they, they have become the bad guys. <laughs> yeah, and they're like, what? How did this? What? Like, there, There's a little change. He does argue, you know, there, there's a change, but... They, they end up so much like the Romans that it's weird, you know? Yeah, because you are necessarily having to manage this much land and this many war campaigns. Like, you're going to do some nasty shit. Yeah. And he kind of says, yeah, this whole organization, also this whole thing of where the country being predominant to the, to the town uh, is... And he says, basically, this implies, you know, there's a low development of agriculture and industry. So that's why... Things are going back to the country instead of the city. Yeah, your agriculture is not enough, not sufficient enough to feed huge 
cities with industry. So Mm -hmm. it takes predominance. So you have big ruling landowners, you have dependent peasantry and and, and serfs and everything else. Shit's bad. Yeah. Shit's bad. (laughs) They called the dark ages for a reason. Well, here's another thing though is interesting is he, he argues that there is this uh, rejuvenation. Did you see this part? Yeah. Yeah. They breathe new life into a dying Europe. Yeah. What was that about? This seems all pretty bad. Well, his argument is that the Germanic, the Germanic tribes are, you know, in this upper stage of barbarism. So with this, they have more of that, more of the things we liked about barbarism. Of, Were of they a little more equal? More gentes, more equal. And he says that, and, and, it, and to me, this is also sort of, I, I didn't know where he was grounding this necessarily. Uh, but he makes the argument that this is, Rather than the death of the Roman Empire and just kind of mire, it was a rebirth. That they made this transition not as they as a civilization were dying, but as they were being born of something new. And that that was in a way different. That they were more independent, that they had more kind of energy. The, these were sorts of the, it seems like that's kind of the argument he was trying to make. Yeah, I, I was confused by that characterization. Like, yeah, a vigorous and creative life. <laughs> that part makes sense. But the part of like this carrying over across the board definitely doesn't. Because like one of the things about the more barbarian societies or what have you going further back, right, is you have better rights for women. And I don't know that I would say that the Dark Ages had better rights for <laughs> women than even the Roman. The Roman Empire was not good, but not good, but better than <laughs> than that, probably. In, yeah, I mean, maybe it's just so dis, you know, diverse that there's not really unifying. I don't know. But that, to me, didn't seem like what I know of the Dark of the Middle Ages. <laughs> I, I would agree. I mean, we see in later chapters, like, it it doesn't seem like women's rights are going anywhere in, the, in this. Like, they're, they don't seem to be improving. Like, reverting back to the gens, like, okay, I've got I've got some power here. Right, yeah. So, I mean, I would say, like, just as they had to subjugate people and do slavery and all this other shit because they're running an empire. I would say the same thing about like how they like treat women. Like they kind of had to like, we need people Mm. to raise people. Like they, they were still going to put them in that category. Yeah. I think it's a weird move that he's like, I mean, maybe he's just a hater for Romans, which like fair, I'm not a big Roman empire fan. So, okay. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. That's, I thought a weird, maybe weak point. We, we just may not have the insight for it. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) Papa Engels might be right in some way, but I just didn't really see it. It was just this weird argument of like, I don't know, I'm not going to accuse Engels of idealism, but (laughs) I didn't know where it was coming from of like, Mm -hmm. what is the real argument for why were they rejuvenating? Besides this whole like loose sort of argument that they had. uh, It was very abstract. Yeah, that's that's the thing. He just got done saying how they had to kind of discard their previous government systems and kind of adopt the Roman ways, but then is saying like, but they did it different. And I didn't really see the evidence of that in later sections. Uh, yeah. Yeah, I would agree. Well, speaking of later sections. The last section. Let's do it. Barbarism and civilization. All right. We've reached the last section and y'all, it's a conclusion section. If you just don't want to read the reading, you can skip to page 86 and you can just read it. And you can read this part and you'll probably get like all the good shit. You won't get as much of the marriage part, I think, and, and the 
y'all, this is just a conclusion. It's just going to reiterate pretty much everything we talked about. So we're going to jump kind of towards the end of it. I mean, he does a cool shout out to the potato as very important. So that was fun. Yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) Potato, obviously one of the big advances in human society. Yeah, but we're going to jump on over towards the end. uh, And he's talking about okay, I've, I've outlined all these, these different ways of organizing things, you know, what's next and, and how would we get there? One, one method being, all right, we have to have some suffrage. We have to have universal suffrage in order to have a working class that feels it can participate in things. Yeah. The democratic Republic, he calls it no property requirements. Uh, he says wealth here employs its power indirectly, but all the more surely does this in two ways by playing corruption of officials of which America is a classic example. <laughs> Shout out to America. Yeah. He's, he's saying like, you know, wealth is still going to totally play a, an outsized role, but at least with universal suffrage, we can have theoretically, we should be able to sway things or it's, he kind of says it's more like not sway things as in fix things, but like it's the precondition to being able to fix things. Yes, yes, which I think he made a similar comment about women in in part one, so makes sense. Yeah. Uh, He has a good, I think, reminder here also existing in the year 2024. We've got to go through an election year, and that's annoying. He's, He's talking about, you know, universal suffrage and all that, he says. And lastly, the possessing class rules directly by means of universal suffrage As long as the oppressed class, in our case, therefore, the proletariat, is not yet ripe for its self-liberation, so long will it, in its majority, recognize the existing order of society as the only possible one and remain politically the tail of the capitalist class. It's extreme left wing. So, like, basically, we're going to accept we got to vote for guy A or guy B because we don't know any because, like, we're just we're just the proletariat. We haven't woken up. Right. But in the measure in which it matures towards its self-emancipation class consciousness we figure out how to organize we we're you know realizing our potential in the same measure it constitutes itself as its own party and votes for its own representatives not those of capitalists universal suffrage is thus the gauge of the maturity of the working class it cannot and never will be anything more in the modern state but that is enough on the day when the thermometer of universal suffrage shows boiling point among the workers they as well as the capitalists will know where they stand Okay, I think this is interesting. I think we've had similar conversations on the show when we talk about like, okay, can we vote our way <laughs> to, to socialism? No, 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 and the no, answer no. is, it, yeah, it's like, no. But if you have enough people where you actually could like pressure enough people into doing it, like you're done. Like yeah. you, you kind of already did the damn thing. Right. Both you and your enemies know your power now. <laughs> You know, and it's up to you. You know, someone needs to grab you by the lapels and shake you and say, take power. You son of a bitch. Like, do it. <laughs> now is time. Because, yeah, that, that's, that's what he's saying. Essentially, is like we can get up to the point. You know, we can figure it out. But at that point, both the, the capitalists and we need to pull the fucking plug on showing up to the ballot and doing all that because shit's about to go down. <laughs> that's not going to get us there all the way, but it can be a good gauge. In the meantime, I guess. Yeah, yeah. And then he, he goes on to say, okay, well, I've, I've shown you all these different states and all how they have like evolved rapidly, or not so rapidly in some cases, but <laughs> basically <laughs> saying no state is forever. No, no culture is forever. None of these things are going to be static. And, um, you know, we're 
getting to a point where our productive forces are getting so much larger. I mean, you think about it in his times, he's like, what, 18 somethings. Mm-hmm. And so <laughs> that was a really good, good measurement of time right there. Yeah, he would pass uh, <laughs> out like if he saw modern production now. Exactly. Like, wow, you can create that many things with that little energy. Like, fuck. Okay. And you're still working for tips, you know, and you're still working minimum wage and you're still getting laid off and everything else. So he's just saying, like, this is not forever. Uh, these these states will fall inevitably as they once rose. And the society which organizes production anew on the basis of free and equal association of the producers will put the whole state machinery where it will then belong, into the Museum of Antiquities, next to the spinning wheel and the bronze axe. The ash oh. heap of history. I love it. Please. I hope we do that. I hope so, too. And and I love the you know the the language of the producers. This is old school socialism, communism. You know now nowadays you hear the producers and you automatically think the factory owners and the because that's what we're conditioned to think. But who makes it? You know whose hands? I mean, I think of like Hollywood producers, but my brain is broken. <laughs> yeah, springtime for Hitler. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, but yeah, that's 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 what he's talking about is the the real working people, you know, the the proletariat, the people kept out of the property classes in Rome and all that. Like us, the the plebes, like it's up to us if we can if because this like he says this stuff is holding us fucking back. Like you and I could work 4 hours a day, 4 days a week and have more than enough. Everyone could live a pretty good life. Like worldwide. <laughs> I don't know. This it's, could it's, happen. It's crazy. Yeah. Obviously, that's it's utopian to just imagine we reset it. But like that, those are the stakes. You're, you know, th- then what does that mean? That means you've got to free yourself from where you're at now. You've got to push for, you know, the chains of imperialism to be weakened all over the world, so that one day you yourself in your imperial core country can be freed. Like you've got to start doing this because otherwise, you're wasting, you're you're doubling the amount of toil that you and and the suffering you have to endure in your limited amount of time on Earth. Oof, you know, man. To, to I guess to hear it from Engels is crazy, just because like <laughs> how much more advanced we are now than <laughs> than when he's talking. Yeah, like he thinks in his time that like we're ready, the productive forces are there, and it's like my dog, you don't even know, <laughs> <laughs> right? So Engels kind of concludes saying essentially uh, this whole process has sort of been a hero's journey. We've gone through the belly of the beast, so to speak, the the ultimate trials of the degradations of civilization. What we've achieved in civilization is good materially, but it was bad, like in terms of setting in motion the lower lowest instincts and passions in man and, and setting everyone against each other, greed and everything, right? It's like, okay, finally you get on the other side, you get these achievements. And then he wraps up with a quote from Morgan saying his judgment of civilization The time which has passed away since civilization began is but a fragment of the past duration of man's existence, and but a fragment of the ages yet to come. The dissolution of society bids fair to become the termination of a career of which property is the end and aim, because such a career contains the elements of self-destruction, democracy and government, brotherhood and society, equality and rights and privileges, and universal education foreshadow the next higher plane of society to which experience, intelligence, and knowledge are steadily trending. It will be a revival in a higher form of the liberty, equality, and fraternity of the ancient gentes. Mm. 
my, which which leads me to believe my man Morgan was kind of cool if he's quoting like like the French Revolution sort of shit. He's yeah, like, must yeah. not have been that bad. I still didn't research him. I mean, like me, maybe an asshole. But. <laughs> maybe he sucked. <laughs> but uh, that's a cool way to to conclude. Of like, I don't know, just like that dream of humanity being, you know, democracy and government, brotherhood and society, equality. And I was like, damn. Yeah, I mean, it's rare we end with an upper here, but I'm for it. <laughs> I want that, and we can get that. And if we can't, our duty is still to try to to try. Damn it, you know, what are we doing if we don't? I think this reading was helpful. Like it was, it was a slog. I'm not gonna lie, not my favorite of the bunch. <laughs> uh, I think the way it was organized was a little bit confusing, like we mentioned earlier, but. I do think it was helpful to break down some really basic concepts such as family and marriage and the state and to to be able to see like, okay, it wasn't always like this and we did this so we could exploit people and mm-hmm. that's not okay. It's a great lesson to come away from this with. Yeah. And you shouldn't look at it also as like a sort of, I don't know, from our, in our experience, at least kind of a, a Catholic sort of original sin guilt sort of thing because when we said we did this some asshole did this oh yeah yeah, yeah. i didn't fucking do this (laughs) yeah some some fucking rich ass guys did this to get richer and we're all living with the consequences because even in their time it's not like society went yeah you know what that's what we need to do like lots of people are like no i would like not to suffer please and they were just boom Mm -hmm. you know put to the sword that's the thing that you're fighting against is you know, to the extent of sins are involved, they're sins of the past of other assholes, you know, and sins of the present of people trying to uphold it, but it's not you, you know, we're trying to get rid of that. We're trying to, in the tradition of Solon and all the ancient debt forgivers, <laughs> we're trying to wipe that all out and get humanity back on a clean slate. I think I'm done here. I'm so tired. Yeah. This is going to be a long one. Sorry, but we did it. <laughs> We got there. I hope you got there with us. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I hope we still have someone left. Uh, yeah. And may, yeah, if it incentivizes you any, at least listen all the way through so you can correct us. Oh, yeah. Yeah, please. But now we're <laughs> at the end. So you either did or didn't. That's fine. <laughs> okay. Next week, we will be taking a break from all this academic stuff and just shooting that shit. Hell yeah. Hopefully the world is too boring and nice and positive for us to we have anything it. to say. We're going to fix it by next week. I've got a feeling. <laughs> oh, yeah. Like aliens show up like childhood's end style and they're just like, there's no war. It's fine. Yeah. <laughs> it would literally have to be aliens at this point. And even then, that takes longer than a week. But okay. Hey, faster than light travel, all this. Yeah. Show up tomorrow. All right. Save me, alien daddy. Here's hoping. Yeah. We need the barbarian aliens to come save us. <laughs> yeah. Begging for Hot barbarian, barbarian aliens. aliens. Please give me an alien zaddy. That's all I want. <laughs> I'll be in your zoo. I will make you art. <laughs> Just stop capitalism. Oh, that's that's great. We still managed to end on an upper. That's awesome. I mean, yeah, it's kind of an upper or a downer, but you know, that is I'm, it's a medium. It's an unqualified success for me if aliens show up. Oh no no no! For sure, for barbarian. Sure daddy aliens anyway oh, not, no, no, not no. just like Zerg, no, not mean ones like <laughs> eliminate aliens <laughs> no, no 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 but i mean it's a downer in that like we're really playing the odds here <laughs> <laughs>
Not anyway. The greater odds are we will liberate ourselves. Here's hoping. Dream of aliens. <laughs> See y'all next week. Adios. Bye. Hey there, comrades. Just jumping in to remind you of all of our social media. We are on Twitter at Teach Communism, Instagram at Teach Me Communism. You can shoot us an email. That's teachmecommunism at gmail.com. Any of those places are good to send us an episode suggestion or a question, anything you think would be useful feedback for us or just your admiration. If you want to admire us in a public manner, and you should, you can go to Apple Podcasts to give us a review. It is the best way to help people find the show. Love when people write and review us. Please do both. We are also on YouTube if that's how you prefer to listen to podcasts, or if you know someone that's the only way they'll listen to podcasts, send them to our page. And we have a Patreon. For five bucks a month, you get access to our notes for each week's episode, including the backlog of notes, which is a very handy resource for up-and-coming commies. And at the end of the year, all of the funds from Patreon will be given to local mutual aid in the DFW area. So, ain't going to line our pockets. Finally, we have merch. Check us out at Tee Public. You can find shirts and I believe also stickers and magnets and all kinds of fun stuff with catchphrases from the show or episode art, stuff like that. The link to that store is in the show notes, so check that out. Okay, that's all the internet. Join us next time for another episode of Teach Me Communism, where the class struggle is always in session. Bye, y'all.